Turn, if you would, to John 10, 28. I told Teresa when I got home on uh, Tuesday night after teaching my global business class that it was just humorous to me. We read two chapters in the book. One was about global competition and one was about global alliances. And in the global competition chapter, all the metaphors were about war. So we talked about war. And in the alliances one, all the metaphors were about marriage. So I gave them a lesson on marriage in the midst of everything else, and I told them that if your marriage is war, you're in trouble. Um, we continue our work, our walk through the church doctrinal statement. Today we're getting to an area that, while I am very confident about, and our church is very confident about, it's actually interesting because every time I teach it, somebody comes up afterwards and says, I don't agree with that. Now, having said that, I hope to scare them all off so they don't come up. Today we're going to talk about whether you can lose your salvation. So, 1028 says, da -da -da -da, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we worked through salvation and what it meant. And we talked about the fact that the blood of the covenant, it is Christ's blood which saves us. It is not Christ's blood plus repentance, Christ's blood plus good feelings, Christ's blood plus faith, good resolution, submission to the rules of any church. Christ's blood plus nothing saves us. All of these things can be evidences of salvation. They are not the cause of salvation. Now, why do I start here before we move on to a discussion about whether you can lose your salvation? The reason I start here is because if I somehow do something that allows me to be saved, I can stop doing that and be, well, unsaved. I can lose my salvation. Our church believes that if you are truly saved, you will never be unsaved. You will never be lost again. But before we continue this, let me give you a picture. There are four groups of people in the world. You know there's two groups of people in the world? Those who divide the world into two groups and those who don't? <laughs> but if you take two groups and you divide them into two more groups, you get four groups, right? The four groups are basically this. There are those who are saved, and they know they are saved. There are those who are saved but don't know that they're saved. There are those who are not saved but think they're saved. And there are those who are not saved and know they're not saved. Why do we bring this up? We know 
based on the Bible, based on clear discussions in the Bible, that there are those people who believe they are saved. Lord, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, God says. We know that there are people who believe they are saved because at some point in their life, they walked down the aisle, they got dunked in the water, something happened to them, and they think they're saved. But they're not really saved. Why is that important? Because we're going to see that there are those who appear to be saved and walk away from their faith. But that does not mean they were truly saved. Let's continue on. We believe, this is the doctrinal statement of the church, we believe, dot, 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 we and all true believers everywhere, once saved, will be kept saved forever. That's what we believe. That's what I believe. Now, in the doctrinal statement, in those dot, dot, dots, there's a series of statements. And we're going to work through those right now. We believe that because of the eternal purpose of God toward the objects of his love, because of his freedom to exercise grace toward the meritless on the ground of the propitiatory blood of Christ, because of the very nature of the divine gift of eternal life, because of the present and unending intercession and advocacy of Christ in heaven, because of the immutability of the unchangeable covenants of God, because of the regenerating, abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of all who are saved, we believe that we and all true believers everywhere, once saved, will be kept saved forever. That's the first section of the doctrinal statement. So let's take this list and work our way through it pretty quickly. Because of the eternal purpose of God toward the objects of his love. The eternal purpose of God. God predestined, he foreknew, he predestined, he chose, he saved us. And we had a minuscule discussion about that because that's all I dared do. Whatever you think about the doctrine of predestination, it begins with the idea that salvation begins with God. Somehow, someway, God is the one who is directing us towards salvation. Because of his freedom to express grace toward the meritless on the ground of the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I'm not sure you're totally convinced yet. Even though I spent a whole lesson on it, and even though I've said it over and over and over again, you're not totally convinced that you did nothing to save yourself. We just 
have it in the back of our minds somewhere that I did something that merited God saving me. At a minimum, I was better than the guy next to me. At a minimum, I was better than the guy. And somehow, someway, I did something. No. God saved you when you were a dirty, rotten sinner. And if he saved you when you were a dirty, rotten sinner, he didn't save you because you merited it. And if you didn't merit, you can't unmerit. I'm keeping make, I'm making up words this whole lesson. Because of the very nature of the divine gift of eternal life. We're going to have several verses about this in just a moment. We've talked about this before. God gives you eternal life. Let's think about that phrase. God gives you eternal life. If God gave you eternal life and then took it away, he did not give you eternal life to begin with. He gave you potential eternal life. He gave you the possibility of eternal life. If he gave you eternal life, it can't be taken away or he did not give you eternal life. Does that make sense? All of these verses are going to talk about receiving eternal life. By its very nature, that means it cannot be removed. Because of the present and unbending, unending intercession and advocacy of Christ in heaven. We talked about this in the book of Hebrews. Where is Jesus right now? He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf and my behalf. And I always give a stupid illustration, and it really is. I have this vision. You know, God is sitting there with Jesus, and God says, did you see that stupid thing that Kyle just did? And Jesus says, yes, I paid for that one. And God says, oh, okay. Did you see that next stupid thing that Kyle did? And Jesus says, yes, I paid for that one too. And God says, okay. It's a stupid illustration. But it is not a stupid illustration that Jesus Christ is interceding on the behalf of all believers right now and for the duration of our lives. Because of the immutability of the unchangeable covenants of God, immutability, God is not going to change his mind. He's just not going to. If he promised eternal life, he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to recurb the grades on the test. You know, all of a sudden, a 90 is not enough to get an A. You have to have a 92, and some people fall off. No, it's not going to happen. And because of the regenerating, abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of all who are saved... These are what fit in that opening sentence in the dot, dot, dot. Because of these things, we and all true believers everywhere, once saved, shall be kept saved forever. Now, we're going to look at a bunch of verses, but before we do that, 
just a brief history lesson, very brief. I grew up in a Baptist church, and we taught this, and uh, we referred to it as the security of the believer, the idea that you are secure in God, in his grace, and you will not lose your salvation. In the Reformed tradition, this is the fifth of the five points of Calvinism. It is the perseverance of the saints. You will not fall away. You will persevere in your faith. Now, there's a slight difference between the security of the believer and the perseverance of the saints, but in the actual discussion, they were using them to mean the same thing. Because the perseverance of the saints emphasizes the fact that you will persevere. It isn't just, I was saved, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. I will, in fact, persevere in what God has started in my life. Now, some verses. John 5, 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed from death to life. Now, back to the bizarre chart that I had at the beginning. We believe that there is an objective reality to being saved. You have moved from one condition to another. You are a new creation. You are regenerated. It is an objective fact. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's not just a matter of, I feel saved today. It's not just a, oh, because I feel this way, I have in fact moved from category A to category B. I have objectively been saved. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed from life to death. From death to life, excuse me. Thank you. I I believe the Bible is inerrant. I'm not. This is the one we just talked about. I gave them eternal life and they they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, here's the observation. If God is protecting you, if God is protecting your salvation, who, what, whom, fill in your favorite word, can take it away from you. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There is this sequence, and there's no conditional sentences in the middle of the sequence. 
It doesn't say those who are justified and who persevere. Those who he has called, who do the right things. It is the beginning with God and it is ending with our glorification. We talked about that last week. There are no conditional statements in this verse. Therefore, he is able to completely, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is what we were talking about just a while ago. To save completely. Now, what does it mean to be saved completely? Those he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. Remember last week's lesson when we talked about salvation? We talked about the past tense, I have been saved, I have been justified. The present, I am being saved, that is, I am being sanctified. And the future, I will be glorified. God is going to completely save us. Past, present, and future. My dear children, I write to you to I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I write to you that you won't sin. We just went through 1 John, by the way. I write to you so that you will not sin. But when you do sin, I can take care of that too. Now, if I believe that I can lose my salvation, here's the question. What is it that I do that causes me to lose my salvation? Well, the obvious answer is sin. Well, does that mean that every time I have an improper thought, I have lost my salvation? In which case, I'm sitting there toggling back and forth between salvation and non-salvation thousands of times a day. Now, we know that can't be true, and this is why the Catholic Church, and I'm not disparaging this, it kind of makes sense, the Catholic Church has broken sins into two large categories. They are the venial sins, those are the minor stuff you do every day, and then there are the really bad ones. Those sins that, in fact, cause you to lose your salvation. And they're very clear. It has to be a clear violation of the Word of God. You have to do it knowingly, in the sense that you don't accidentally do it. And these things, so we divide these things into sins that, well, they're just taken care of in the normal part of life, and the really bad ones. But you know what? The Bible doesn't really make this distinction. But if anybody does sin, as long as it's not a really bad sin, 
We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. There's not really a distinction there. There is the acknowledgement we're going to sin, and there's the acknowledgement we're going to need continual forgiveness. But there's not the acknowledgement that there's some sins that Jesus Christ will not intercede for us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. More about that in just a moment. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To him who is able to keep you from falling. Notice it does not say if you can keep you from falling. It's not you, it's him that is keeping us from falling. Back to the doctrinal statement. We believe, however, that God is a holy and righteous father and that since he cannot overlook the sin of his children, he will, when they persistently sin, chastise them and correct them in infinite love. But having undertaken to save them and keep them forever, apart from all human merit, he who cannot fail will in the end present everyone of them faultless before the presence of his glory and conform to the image of his son. What does this say? There are consequences of sin. There just are. There are broken relationships. There are punishments. There are a variety of different consequences of sin. Generally, well, we'll talk about this in the next chart, but generally, we begin to doubt our salvation because of the presence of sin in our life. Well, we just talked about we have, when we sin, we have someone to intercede for us, which acknowledges the fact that we're going to sin. But we need to remember that even if we are saved, those sins do in fact have consequences. Why do people have trouble with the idea of eternal salvation? There are scriptures that talk about falling away. We're going to talk about one of those in just a moment. We all know Christians, notice how I put that in quotes, who have ceased to display any fruit of their relationship with Christ. We all know these people. We just do. And the question we have to ask is, were they truly saved to begin with? Back to the original discussion. We know in the scripture there are people who thought they were saved but were not saved. I have said in here repeatedly, and I will continue to say it because we need to know it. If there is no fruit in your life, fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, if there is no fruit in your life, it is a red flag that you are not what you think you might be. 
but I cannot judge the condition of your heart. That's God's job. There are those who have been dunked in the water many times, and all it did was wash the dirt off. It had no saving effect. We believe that if we accept the doctrine of eternal security, then people can live any way they want after their conversion. We believe this. We worry about this. You mean if I walk down the aisle and accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, if I get baptized in the water, I can do anything I want? No. That was last week's lesson about sanctification. If you walk down the aisle, you get baptized, and you then believe that you can live any way you want, you are not saved. Okay? I just kind of violated my rule of I'm not going to judge the condition of your heart. But you're not. If you have no desire to do the things of God, you're not saved. Now, that desire may come and go, it may wander, it may lead you down the wrong path. That's sin. We know that. But if you truly believe, I can live any way I want because at some point in my life, some preacher pronounced that I was saved, you're confused. And I understand why we worry about this. Because we don't want people thinking that. There is a dilemma that preachers and teachers have. Back to the original chart, four groups of people. There are those who are saved and know they're saved. There's those who are saved but don't really have that assurance. That's the next chart. There are people who think they're saved, but they really aren't. And when a preacher gets up to talk to a congregation, he wants to encourage those who are saved and maybe wobbling in their assurance of it, and he wants to convince them, trust in God, you're saved. While at the same time, there are those who think they're saved but aren't really, and you know what? They need a different message. They need to be exposed to the fact that they're not doing that which God would have them to do. And that is an indicator. While not running off the people who are saved, but lack the assurance. Do you see the dilemma there? That a preacher, it's easier to do when you're talking to someone one-on-one. -on -one. But we know, we know. There are those who think they're saved who are not. And there are those who think I can live any way I want, even though, eh, anyway. Article 11. We're going to talk about assurance. We believe it is the privilege, not only of some, but of all who are born into the Spirit through faith in Christ as revealed in the scriptures, to be assured of their salvation. 
from the very day they take him as their, to be their savior, and that this assurance is not founded on any fancied discovery of their own worthiness or fitness, but wholly upon the testimony of God in his written word, exciting within his children filial love, gratitude, and obedience. The doctrine of assurance is a little more complicated because it does carry with it the idea of, do you feel like you're saved? And if you feel like you're saved, what is the basis of that feeling? Is the basis of that feeling that, well, I may not have been very good yesterday, but today I'm pretty good. Today, I merit, no, I merit my salvation. No. The only basis of assurance is, are, the promises of God. God has said, those who I give eternal life to, they will be, they are being, they are saved. And it will not be removed from them. If we believe that my assurance is based on me continuing to get an above average grade on the daily test, I'm going to be in trouble. As we study the Word of God, as we bring the Word of God into our lives, then we have assurance. Because the more we are convinced it isn't about us, and the more we are convinced it's all being done by God, then, and only then, can we have true assurance. You remember, right, in our discussion in the book of 1 John, repeatedly he says, I'm writing this so that you can know there is the knowledge of what God has done for you. That is what gives us assurance. It is not your feelings on any particular day about how, well, I seem to be doing pretty well today. No. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is the only basis of your assurance. The picture that is used is that God writes your name in the book. And if God wrote your name in the book, who in the world has an eraser? Who can separate us from the love of God? Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. These are just a few a few of the many, many verses we could look at that are the promises that are the basis of our assurance. It isn't us. Therefore, we are also confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What is the center sentence? We walk by faith, we live by faith, not by sight. 
This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. That is the basis of our assurance. Hard passages. There are verses which taken out of context of the entire word of God can lead one to believe that you can lose your salvation. Notice I didn't say taken out of context of the immediate verse. You have to look at the entire scripture. And whenever we have this discussion, in fact, every time, every time I start teaching the book of Hebrews, somebody tells me, what are you going to say about Hebrews chapter 6? Do you know what Hebrews chapter 6 says? Well, there it is. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, stop right there. The first discussion that you always have about this passage is, who is it talking about? Those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age, it sure sounds like they're saved. And Don is shaking his head that they're not. I think they are. But you know, right, that if you read five commentaries on this passage, you'll get eight different explanations of it. If they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, and because of their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. The first thing you need to recognize is that this verse, while used by people who want to say you can lose your salvation, actually does not teach what they think it's teaching. What it's really teaching is if you could lose your salvation, you can never get it back again. That's really what it's teaching. If you fall away, there is no regeneration. There is no coming back. That's what really what this passage is saying. Now, since Don is shaking his head, I'll give you my explanation. It is impossible. What did it say? It is impossible for those who have been truly saved to fall away. Because if they did fall away, there would be no hope for them because they can't possibly save, I mean, get cru Jesus crucified again. Go ahead. Okay, I'm off the hook. But people look at this verse, and it has that phrase in the middle of it, if they fall away. My observation would be this. Those who are truly saved will not fall away. But if you are not truly saved, when the hard times come, when the difficulties appear in your life, it is quite likely, if not almost guaranteed, 
that you're going to fall away. In the early church, there were lots of people who accepted the gospel, supposedly, until the persecution started. And then it was like, well, it was fun meeting, but you know, it's not that fun. And off they go. So this is a difficult passage. It really is. But it does not teach what they think it's teaching about losing your salvation. Conclusion. Since salvation is totally a work of God, he is faithful to keep us saved for all eternity. And you have to understand, if salvation is totally work of God, okay, if you believe you contributed to your salvation, then you can uncontribute it. If you believe it's you walking down an aisle or you getting dunked in the water that saved you, then you can unwalk down the aisle. But if you believe it's totally God, then it's totally God. There's no act on our part or on the part of others that can unsave us. If, in fact, you are truly saved. What would you do? What can separate us from the love of God? Romans chapter 8, at the end of it. And then he goes into a list of all the powers in the universe. And the answer is, none of them can separate us from the love of God. This does not mean that there are not professed Christians who fall away. It just shouldn't surprise us. The scripture is very clear of people who were part of the group who, when the times got hard, walked away from the group. This does not mean that our sins do not have consequences. And we can, in fact, have assurance of our salvation. But it is not on the basis of our works, but it is on the basis of God's word. If I am trying to convince myself, I think I'm saved, I think I'm saved, I think I'm saved, then I'm going to sit here and work myself into a tizzy. When I go to the scripture and the scripture says, what can take us away from the love of God? And if I base my assurance on the scripture, well, then I can have assurance because it's not based on my particular feelings. Now, we are told to examine ourselves. You're told to examine yourself before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because we sin. What do we do when we sin? We confess our sin, and he is faithful to forgive us our sins. This is, last week's lesson, the process of sanctification. So, if I had to speculate, I would say that there are many, 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 many groups of Christians in this world who are convinced you can lose your salvation. I think I told you I had a coworker who was a uh, Church of Christ minister, and yeah, he was convinced. I walked through the door, I can just as easily walk out the door. And um, I read all of his verses, and once again, 
if you don't look at the entirety of the scripture, that God is faithful to keep his covenants, to keep his promises to us, you can begin to live in fear that at any moment you're going to do that sin and you're going to walk away. But when we trust in God's promises, when we live according to his promises, we do in fact desire, want to do God's will. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us once and forever. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.